Welcome to the VoxGig podcast. We talk to people in the developer community about developer relations, public speaking, and community events. For more details, visit voxgig.com podcast. All right, let's get started. The interesting thing about DevRel is that people end up in it, both from the developer side and from the marketing side. Today, I'm talking to Suze Shardlow. She started off as a marketer and is now a coder. Not only is she a coder, she is a speaker, an event MC, and a published tech author. In this podcast, Suze offers a really good insight into the relationship between sales and DevRel, and how you have to be really careful in your organization not to position DevRel as just another part of the sales funnel, because nothing turns off developers damages a community of developers that are trying to sell to them directly. We just don't work that way. We also talk a little bit of how Sue's got into speaking and how being an event MC is not quite the same as doing a talk. So without further ado, let's get started. Suze, it is great to have you here today on the Fireside Box Gig podcast. Welcome, welcome. Richard, thank you so much for inviting me. It's uh, really exciting. Awesome. Let's get straight into it with, uh, I think, one of the most critical questions uh, the developer relations world is trying to figure out at the moment. Uh, lots and lots of opinions on this one. Uh, where does developer relations live in the organization? That is definitely the age-old question. And I don't think we, I think if we were here for 50 years, we still wouldn't have the answer. But uh, and this might sound like a bit of a cop-out, but I think it depends. Um, so what we are seeing now is a lot of companies are saying, oh, we want developer relations, we need a DevRel department, we're going to hire somebody to do this thing. And I think a lot of the time these folks don't really know why they need developer relations. I think what's clear is that every company wants to make more sales. And I think that a lot of companies... Uh, they want developer relations to contribute to that, which is, you know, everybody's got to work towards the, the high-level company objectives. And I think that where developer relations sits depends whereabouts on the continuum or how involved you want uh, DevRel to be involved in that piece. So DevRel is kind of a multidisciplinary thing. Um, we do a lot of different things. We overlap with a lot of different sort of functions or, you know, tasks. Um, and in some companies, I would argue, you know, small startups that are quite new, if you're going to hire DevRel, you probably want them to contribute to the sales process a lot more than if you've got a mature product, you've been operating for a long time, and maybe you've already IPO'd, probably not so much, you're probably more on the education side and uh, the awareness side, um, and yeah. maybe product development type thing. So it really depends. But personally, if I was going for a job in DevRel, I don't think I'd want to be one of those, even though I'm died in the world marketer and I, that's where I started off, I don't think I'd want to work in a DevRel department that reported into marketing. I think I'd prefer to work in one that, uh, that reported into engineering or product. So, yeah, it, it really depends. I think there's no right or wrong answer, but it, the job is definitely different depending on where DevRel sits. You're, you're kind of getting at an interesting point. So that this discussion... I'm sure other, you know, if you've listened to other podcasts or whatever, 
you've heard this discussion before, um, but I think you're raising a point that I have not heard before, which is uh, really interesting, which is whether the organization sees DevRel as part of the sales funnel. Yeah. Or part of the, um, I don't know, brand awareness community building. Um, and that's sort of the underlying decision or strategy which really drives how you position DevRel, right? Yeah, it does. And that's not necessarily what people have signed up for when they when they decided to go and develop a relation. So you've got to be really careful when you look at job adverts to, to see exactly what's expected of you. Um, but yeah, every company wants to sell more. A lot of DevRel teams, even if they don't sit in marketing, that's one of their metrics. You know, they've got a code uh, that they can give out at talks and things like that. So they can measure signups and stuff. So it might just only be the free tier, but we know that the free tier is you know, a part of the funnel, isn't it? So Absolutely. it's kind of no getting away with it, no getting away from it. Yeah. Would that come out? I mean, if you're, if you're doing a job interview for a DevRel position, what questions do you ask to kind of tease that out? Right? Are you, do you have sales metrics or how would you find that out? If I was going for a job? Yeah. Um. Yeah, I think I'd just go in there and say, I mean, I have done this. Yeah. If they haven't got anyone in DevRel at the moment, I just say to them, why do you need DevRel now? What problem is DevRel going to be solving for you? Um, and then listen to the answer. Silence is quite a good tool in these situations. <laughs> Great negotiating. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, just asking somebody why they want DevRel, and then that just gives you the answer as to where they think it sits. Because if they want DevRel because they want more sales, then, you know, you might not sit in marketing, but you're really going to be aligned to that. If they want DevRel because they want to raise more awareness or they want to get feedback from community, then, you know, that gives you an idea of what's expected from you as well. So I think that that is my main question that I would ask. Also, you know, just the general questions that I would always ask, like, where am I, who are my main relationships going to be with if I get this job? So that's quite telling as well. Yeah, that would, that would, yeah, absolutely. That would tell you. I mean, I think you're right to identify the fact that in a, in a smaller startup at an earlier stage, most everything is really about sales or the company is dead. Um, so you kind of know what you're getting. Um, but in a, in, a, in a more mature and a larger organization, um, you end up working in a DevRel team, right? So what's that yeah. experience like? I mean, have you, have you had both of these experiences where you were basically the only DevRel person, perhaps, or one where you're in a team? And how, do they, how does that differ? Um, okay, so at the moment, I'm the only community person in the DevRel team, which is kind of similar. And in the past, I've been the only marketing person in the company, which, again, is quite similar. So to be that first hire is really hard because if they haven't got anybody doing any of that activity, and they want, you know, naturally they're going to want everything because they're so excited to have somebody on board. You've really got to manage their expectations as to what exactly you can do and what they should be doing. Um, and what you find is a lot of people hire you and they say, I hired you because of your expertise. And then they don't actually go on to use the said expertise or ask you for your opinion. Or they ask you for your opinion and then they just ignore it. And that happens to everybody. Um, but when you're in a bigger team, it's... Um, it's kind of easier, especially if you've got a good manager, to play to your strengths and have those opportunities to build up knowledge and experience in the areas that you're not so strong at and you want to develop in so you can help each other. But there's definitely more um, 
it's more scope to play to everybody's strengths and make sure that things are being covered that way rather than stretching yourself thinly over things that you is not necessarily what you want to do or what you can do um yeah and I, also that you know there's all different ways of dividing things up so some people do things geographically don't they we don't do that we do things by language um so we don't say right you're going to be the the MEA javascript devrel so you know you're the javascript devrel and you cover every every geography as far as you can so um yeah i know some companies have had massive teams haven't they um oh, yeah and, absolutely right yeah know. like for 40 plus people even uh okay i'm i'm gonna i'm i'm, I'm gonna pick up on a, a little thing you said right so no no need to name names uh, let's let's frame this question a little way a little differently um what are common devrel mistakes that people make where your expertise perhaps might have taken them in a different more successful direction hmm um not listening to devrel when they say this is how developers want to communicate or this is how they want to hear from us mm. um not looking at the bigger picture and thinking strategically but this is something that i've noticed just in every job that i've had people tend to focus on the tactics um and they're like because they're the things that you see right that's the end product of what you're trying to do that's the really visible piece of work nobody goes back and says oh can i see your strategy document in a minute because i'm really interested in that and then you know they'll, they'll see your presence um so people tend to look and see what other people are doing and like oh yeah we need to do that and i think my question the question that i've been asking everybody since i first got my first job is why why like you said at the beginning why do you need devrel so why do you need to go on tiktok <laughs> yeah <laughs> why just because somebody else did it um so yeah i think those are the two big things and i think um a mistake that new people coming into devrel make i think is that they do look at the tactics and they see it as a sort of a influencer role um when actually yes okay there are influencers in De influencers in devrel but there are loads of people working in devrel who you've never even heard of so yeah i think that is a bit of a misconception amongst a lot of people but again it comes back to that whole like what is devrel and if nobody can really answer that question convincingly in a way that's kind of you know the universally accepted answer then you can't really blame them yeah uh and the question of of how developers like to receive communication is uh, is one that's close to my heart actually uh, speaking as, as someone who also does development and tends to have to integrate with a lot of apis different systems uh you know you have wonderful experiences uh, things like stripe that type of stuff Redis is pretty cool documentation, right? Pretty much always has, which is um, has always helped. Uh, but I, I've, from my perspective, the on the communication side, uh, one of the things that I don't feel a lot of companies solve is uh, addressing the adoption risk issue. So if my boss, I'm a developer, and my boss tells me, "Oh, integrate X, Y, Z," or I have a client and they say, oh, estimate the integration cost of 
ABC service and here's three services and compare them. Uh, I find a lot of companies fall down, even if they have great reference documentation on helping me ascertain what that actually, what integration act, actually looks like. Um, that's why companies that, that have uh, speakers that go out and write sample applications and all that sort of stuff, I really like that because you can see, show me the code, right? Um, so I, I don't know, kind of what, what, what's your take on that in terms of the communication? What, what have you seen that works? Is maybe that's my just just my little obsession seeing sample code, but in your yeah. broader experience, what, what works and what doesn't? Um, I think sample code and um, showing people how it actually works in practice and demos are definitely what people want to see. Um, because there's no point telling them it in a sort of a conceptual way. Like you say, they need to know how they're going to be actually be able to use it. And the best way of showing them that is actually by showing them that. And I think that's really the argument for having developer relations, because if you have a marketing team, they're probably going to be marketers. And I say this as somebody who worked in marketing for a long time, the companies that I worked at in marketing, um, you know, I worked for an engineering company. I wasn't an engineer. So you, you know, you work for a retail company, you're not a retailer. Although that's a, probably a little bit easier to understand because you use retail. But if you're trying to market something that you don't use and you've never used and it's not your expertise, um, you're never going to be able to produce that demo. So I think that's the gap that developer relations fills in there for marketing. Yes, you know, some marketing departments do have technical marketing people. But again, that's different from DevRel because in developer relations, we want to be that trusted voice authentic voice that will te always tell you what's best for you as a developer not um not trying to make that sale or trying to get you into the funnel but just being that honest kind of voice reflecting re re reflecting the, the developer feeling back um but yeah i think it's it's definitely to do with that and people love them you know when you go to conferences or you go to meetups they really love to see it in action and they're like wow that's a really cool way of using it and the great thing about redis is it's a database so you can basically put it with with anything so uh yeah that's really that's really handy um i can imagine for other folks um it can be quite hard but yeah you're right that whole thing about you know how does this actually work for me if i was going to bring this into my stack and you know have it part of my as part of my day-to-day -day work um there probably is a bit of a gap there um but i suppose that comes in with the possibly a bit sort of the sales piece. So the, the engineers working in sales would be able to kind of give you a really good answer on that. Um, we focus more on how to use it rather than how to integrate it. But I think you make a really interesting point. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, there's all sorts of questions around integration because you don't just adopt a specific platform. How does it how does it then run in Google versus Amazon, whatever, right? Or bare metal. Yeah. You know, that that's that that's as important. Um some of the best developer relations interactions that I've had are with companies that I decided not to use in the end. Um where there was some interaction with with their engineers and on the DevRail side, and we came to a mutual understanding that it was not an appropriate solution for whatever project I was working on. Um, I think that's brilliant because yeah, that's it, really, 
yeah, that's what developer relationships is supposed to be. It's not right. supposed to be, oh, you know, this is the best thing for you. Don't use any of these other competitors. This is why we're better than them. It's all about, okay, what are you trying to do? Yeah, okay, maybe sometimes we are the best solution. Other times, actually, you know, probably we're not going to do what, what you need. And my my impression of those companies, and, and <laughs> it's not the majority, <laughs> it's still only a few, but is you know when it when it is right i will totally go back to those guys because um yeah they they've established a huge amount of trust um another challenge that i've come across uh is the difference in developer relations i'm not going to call it strategy because as as you pointed out this strategy is uh something that's people need to work on um, just in terms of execution, uh, there's different, seems to be different, different kind of layers of companies. So there's, there's very heavily developer focused tools, Redis, Mongo, Stripe, that sort of thing where, you know, they, they clearly understand that they're going to be dealing with lots of developers. And then you have, um, I suppose companies like Salesforce where, and Amazon, where it's just. Developers are part of their bread and butter, and there's just mountains and mountains of information, and they do a relatively good job, but you know it's, it is a little bit take it or leave it, and usually you just have to take it. Um, but then the third category, which I find the most frustrating, are specialist service providers in e-commerce or communications or various things like that, where they, they are an API-led company. It's the way that you interact with their service. Um, but the actual execution is awful, right? You spend you spend days trying to figure out how to authenticate with service, this type of thing. Um, and is it just lack of resourcing around documentation, or is it fundamental lack of understanding? I don't know. I've 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 seen very few of those types of companies do it well. It's always a frustrating experience. Yeah, I think. Um, that in programming, in software engineering, for some reason, engineers are really quick to forget what it's like to be a beginner. Um, so if you, like you say, if you look at any sort of quick start guide, a lot of the time they're assuming a level of knowledge, which is not necessarily standard across all of them either. Um, so it's like starting on step three. <laughs> okay, where was step one and two? And I feel like even people who are experienced at software development, so they're not newbie coders, they're always going to be newbie at something. So like you say, you want to pick up this new tool, you want to use their API. Um, you've never used it before, but you've probably got quite a lot of experience in programming and you still can't do it. So I think that even though we're in developer relations, sometimes we do find it hard to go right back to the beginning and think, right, who is actually, because the audience is key here. That, that's the whole, you know, the part of uh, marketing that really kind of is important in developer relations is the audience piece. So I don't think we think about the various audiences that we have. And it's not just one audience. You can't just say our audience is developers. So, you, for example, you might be looking at people in different verticals and the type of companies they work at and the software they've got. So where are they starting from? Probably a little bit higher. And then you might think, right, okay, so we've got a database. 
So who's going to use a database? Probably quite a lot of engineers at all different stages. We might have people that are learning to code that want to use our database. Um, so we need to produce some stuff that speaks to them. So, um, yeah, I think it's because we don't think enough about where the developer is coming from and we choose this sort of arbitrary, uh, this arbitrary, not even persona. I don't think, I mean, I know a lot of people do have personas, but I think a lot of people don't as well. Um, we just choose this arbitrary point at which we think this is where you're going to start. This is your start point. Yeah, uh, I don't, I don't, I, 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 I and I don't have the answer for those sort of not, not I, I don't want to call them third tier companies, but perhaps resource constrained. Um, but perhaps we just need to develop more um, community knowledge and more, maybe not standards, but just ideas of what me, what it means for for there to be excellence in developer relations. I think it's so new and so young. Can anybody do that? Um, I know. I mean, I know people have written books and, and that sort of stuff, but it doesn't feel like there is an objective standard that people can be held to to say this is this is really good. Okay, you, you know, you can point at Stripe and say, yeah, they did it really well, but what exactly did they do? <laughs> right? I couldn't tell you. It's hard to know. Mm, I th yeah, but again, I think it depends on their audience, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, it's. Right. I suppose right. you could you could go back to first principles of marketing. And and model it that way, I think, you know, why did we do this? And why did we do it the way that we did it? Because this is the sort of person we wanted to talk to, and this is what we wanted to do them to do as a result. Um, I think the problem comes is when you're thinking about your tactic and not really thinking about why you're doing it and uh, what outcome you want. Um, yeah, it's, and... and you 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 keep coming back to this. I, th I think it's a really interesting point, right? Where you you're saying you need to ask why. There needs to be a there needs to be a, a why. There needs to be an answer. Yeah. I, yeah. Engineers have this problem with why because it's just fun to code. It's just fun to do engineering. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't need to be a why. I I remember working with a colleague who's who's. CEO of quite a successful consulting company now. Um, but I remember very clearly having coffee with him one day in 20, uh, 2009, I think it was. And he told me with a straight face that he would code for free. He liked it so much, even if nobody was willing to pay him as a job. Uh, How's he going to eat? <laughs> it doesn't matter. He liked coding so much that... <laughs> I mean, at the time he was like, well, you know, you know what about the mortgage? Um, but he, <laughs> that, that, that guy, he's, he's a good friend of mine and everything. Um, and he does great developer relations in his own stuff. But yeah, there's, there's definitely, I think, a, an issue in the engineering mindset where why is not, it's not a factor, um, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's why that's why it you know if devrel is uh made up of engineers then it kind of it follows doesn't it but that's where you get then get into issues because if your business can't if your organization can't see the value of devrel or they're always asking you to justify your existence you need to have some why to tell them yeah. whether or not it's part of your fun <laughs> Your fun realm in software engineering, you, you you do have to kind of bend to that corporate 
piece, unfortunately. Um, even if your users don't have to, then you're 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 a business unit, aren't you? And you you do have to think about it. So um, yeah, I I personally find it more satisfying if I've got a bit of a north star. Yeah. So yeah, doesn't it? I mean, isn't it true that I guess if there is no clearly defined strategy, the why questions are very hard to answer. Um, yeah, it yeah, is a strategy. Totally. It's, if if there is a strategy, it's actually clear. I mean, whether the answers are right or wrong is, is separate. Just defining a strategy lets you answer those why questions. Um, yeah, the, the why, two things go hand in hand. Why are we trying to reach developers on TikTok? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Actually, actually. <laughs> um, let, let's talk about uh, let's talk about conferences and speaking and MCing because you do all that stuff as well. Is that something that um, you found you had a natural talent for, or was it a skill that you had to develop? Did you have a fear of public speaking? <laughs> um, I, I'm just trying to think about the first uh, MC gig that I did. I can't remember which one it was. But uh, no, it's something that I really love to do. And I was thinking about it, and I think the reason is because when I was a child, um, I really wanted to be a radio presenter. Oh, there you go. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that's the reason. And I've always loved explaining things to people. And I remember like, you know, as a child, sort of just acting out that I was presenting stuff. But I never made it because as like a brown woman in the 1990s, there's no real, there's no visible path for you to take into that role. As for the public speaking piece, and did I have a fear of public speaking? No, I didn't. Because the school that I went to, um, it was a private school. And there were, <laughs> when you're 11 and you get sent to this like school that none of your other friends are going to, um, you don't really know what to expect until you get there. And then you get there and then they tell you, right, we're going to have an exam at the end of every single year. I'm like, hang on a minute. I've heard about this thing called GCSEs. <laughs> I'm going to take in five years. What are you talking about? And the other thing that they said was, we're going to do a speech in front of the whole class every single year. Um, so yeah from the age of 11 and it was a girl's school so you can imagine how brutal that was so uh yeah that pretty quickly beat any fear out of me you just kind of learned to survive yeah 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 and um I remember once doing a talk about <laughs> I've never told anyone this actually I remember doing a talk about time and how now doesn't really exist because when you think of now like it's already gone it, yeah, absolutely. I 100% agree. Yeah. So as an 11 year old, it was, I think that was quite deep, actually. <laughs> and um, and I remember doing this speech in front of my dad, like practicing it to my dad. And my dad was like a huge perfectionist. And he said, oh, no, no, I, I don't think so. I think you need to change it to this and that. So I changed it, changed it completely. And I didn't like it. So at the last minute when I went up, I changed my mind and did my original speech. Oh, well done. Uh, yeah, yeah. And um, and the teacher at the end, she was, yeah, every, it was funny. Like everybody was laughing and stuff. And, you know, I got the laughs at the bits that I wanted. And the teacher actually said, you got genuine laughs. And like that to me was like, well, you know, not a lot of people can do that. So, yeah, um, yeah so every year I had to do this speech. And then when I went to university, they made us um, do a presentation on a new <laughs> a new product 
and this is really going to age me out. But so we chose Dyson vacuum cleaners because uh, they were really new at the time. And um, yeah. yeah, and uh, Virgin Mobile as well, because that was a new thing at the time. So, so yeah, I've been presenting like for, uh, well, 30 something years. So uh, by now, I mean, I always still get nervous, always still get nervous. Um, but it doesn't scare me. So if anyone says to me, do you want to do the talk? I always put my hand up um, and then like, <laughs> regret it. So I'm like, right, yeah, now I've got to write this talk. But um, yeah. yeah, I'm I'm really accustomed to it. And this emceeing thing for me is a natural extension and lets me get to do something a little bit different as well. I don't think people appreciate um, how, well, for me anyway, I find the MC. Uh, job uh, to be way more difficult than giving a talk um yeah it is talk you can prep in advance and you have your slides but with the mc role you're you're expected to be a little bit funny you're expected to have all these random facts people's names companies yeah i, I just yeah my, i go blank <laughs> um very stressful um i have to have notes um i, I don't know maybe 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 you're more of a natural given you given your Goal to be a radio presenter. Um, do you do you find it stressful, or is does it something that is something that comes naturally? No, I I find it just comes naturally, and also yeah, I've always had a, wow. I've always had a really good memory. Yeah. Um, sorry, please don't test me. <laughs> um, I tend to remember details about people Brilliant. that they told me. Um, so I don't tend to need notes that much, and I think it's. It makes the person feel more valued that you've remembered yeah. this stuff and you haven't had to refer back and you're not just going through the motions. But yeah, like you say, the, the role of MC means that there's a lot more unknown. So for example, somebody might have submitted their talk. I wasn't necessarily on the selection committee, so I don't really know what their talk is going to be about other than what it says on the website. Um, and then, you know, we've all had this, you go to a talk and it's totally not what you were expecting it to be. So the speaker, when they wrote their abstract, they had a, a thing in mind as to what they meant. And when you read it, you interpreted it in a different way. <laughs> so oh, yeah. the talk that, yeah, the talk that comes out of them isn't necessarily what you're expecting. Um, and so you've got to listen and you've got to formulate your own questions as well, because you may not get any questions from the audience. So you've got to be able to to ask a question and so that can be quite hard if what they're talking about isn't necessarily the area that you know about um yeah, you've always got to trigger the questions right because there's there's always that sort of awkward pause at the end the speaker goes yeah in and there's silence yeah and they might be talking about some technology that i've never used or that i know nothing about but i've got to be able to yeah. to talk to them about it in a uh not a knowledgeable way, but in a sort of a convincing way. So, so I have to listen probably a lot more than your average attendee. Right. Right. I know <laughs> well, it's, I, it's, you're not off when the speaker is speaking. You're no, still, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's still very much on. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. No, but, well, uh, you had my admiration. I found I'm not sure I would sign up for too many more. Uh, I, I, I like doing the talks, but the the MC thing really. Uh, is, it wasn't nerves, but it was just super stressful because you don't want to um, put your foot in it. Uh, you know, it's it's like you said. You know, you, you see a talk and then you introduce it completely incorrectly, and then the speaker has to correct you. 
when they start, which is what happened to me. So. Oh, yeah, yeah. Or um, some people, what they do is because they don't really know what they want to say, they do an intro of the speaker, which I try not to do because you don't know if that speaker is dedicated two or three minutes at the beginning of their talk to introduce themselves. So then you've just duplicated what they're going to say. So, yeah, there's a few different things that you need to bear in mind if you're going to do that role. But, um, yeah, I really enjoy it because I like doing talks, but it's just a different different type of public speaking. Have you done the MC thing for virtual events? Yeah. Now, how is that? Yeah. How does that go? Um, hmm. Yeah, it's good. So I did, it was nearly two years ago now, it's gone really fast. I did a six hour <laughs> event um, where I was the producer and the MC and stuff. So that was quite interesting because I had to rely on my speakers to to turn up because I didn't have anyone behind the scenes making sure it was it. So they did turn up and it was all good. But I was fully prepared that if somebody didn't turn up, I would just be like, right, I need to fill this 20 minutes with something, which is fine. Um, but yeah, I feel like online events are good because yes, okay, you don't get feedback from the audience, but also you don't get any of that sort of nervousness of, oh, these people aren't looking at me, they're looking at their phones or whatever. You are very much sort of there and you don't have to try and get anybody's attention if that makes sense. So it is very different. Um, but it's still good i still enjoy doing that yeah i i was a skeptic to begin with um because i'd done so many in-person ones and needed that audience energy um, and i had done virtual ones before covid and really didn't enjoy them um but i've kind of come yeah. around now i've kind of yeah short and sweet think- you know don't try to replicate the whole conference experience um and it's not so much about the networking it's it, it is much more about the content so I think you just have yeah. to on the what it's suitable for, as opposed to trying to replicate the in-person thing, which is very different. That's the thing, isn't it? You've got to, again, you've got to sort of like think of, you know, what, what am I trying to achieve here, and understand the limitations of the medium that you've got available to you. So, like you say, you didn't really like the virtual events, but you know, then lockdown came along, you didn't really have a choice. <laughs> So you have to you have to adapt and then you have to realize that actually you can't do everything that you would normally do but it's like anything isn't it it's like right i'm gonna make a cake i've only got these ingredients what can i do with that i haven't got any chocolate so i'm not gonna have chocolate cake today how much you want it so you've just got to make do with what you've got and sometimes some really good things can come out of it so like i started running a um a Sunday session in April 2020 around the time of the first lockdowns which was an online session for people who needed sort of a bit of mutual motivation and accountability to get stuff done and from that we've got a core team of people who come every week and they still come every week so in that respect it's really kind of built up the community a lot because a lot of people prefer online stuff and they're just more themselves with online stuff. And they don't really want to go and do things in person. Or they can't do things in person because there's too high of a risk still for them with this yeah. illness that's going around. So, um, yeah, it's uh, it's different and it had its advantages. 
definitely. And I think it's given us a lot of opportunities that we didn't previously have. Yeah, and I think I, and I think it should, I think it should continue. It should be part of the event mix. Um, I, I find it's uh, I find it's really good for including a wider range of people, especially with newer diversity, um, because actually going to an, an in-person event uh, is pretty stressful, you know, for some people, um, and. If you can do it, if you can do it remotely, you can still get access to the the thinking and all that sort of stuff without having without having to deal with people, uh, which sometimes sometimes I prefer. Yeah, I feel a bit disappointed in um, events that have now just gone on. Sorry, they've gone back in person and not providing online because it does feel a bit like oh, we had the online piece when all the like the uh, the abled people needed it. But now they don't need it anymore. We're not going to do it. Mm. So um, no, no, yeah, no. I th- you have to be ever. You have to be hybrid. Yeah, I I think you do. I think you do. Um, but a lot of people are are not embracing that because it's gone into the too difficult box. Oh, but I mean, there's so many solutions for it now. It's it's not. It, it used to be difficult. Mm. Well, it's not. It, okay, I mean, maybe it's a little bit more operational stuff but I mean, I, I it's mean, work isn't it yeah it's just, people 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 don't like <laughs> it's just it's just easier for them to to you know do it the way that they wanted to do it so uh yeah not everybody but there are definitely some that have just gone back uh well maybe, maybe that's just revealing that those particular conferences were mostly about uh, drinking <laughs> as opposed yeah to- <laughs> which again is not very inclusive is it yeah. But I think with meetups as well, like I think that's a shame when a meetup goes back to in-person only because, um, you know, a lot of meetups were sort of locally based but actually attracted people from everywhere during the lockdowns because they were online. And now those people who might be living in different countries and stuff kind of lose that community because it's no longer online for them anymore. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, uh, you know, I definitely experienced that with some of the meetups that I went to online. That it was, it became more international, much more interesting. Uh, yeah, and, and you know, yeah. it was easier to get speakers. It's so funny. I remember one of the meetups that we used to run, and this would be twenty twelve. Now, oh my goodness. Um, <laughs> we, we, we actually, we didn't know what we were doing because it was, we were the first time running a meetup and we <laughs> got speakers from California to talk to the meetup via Skype. Wow. We projected, yeah, we projected the, this, the kind of this, the Skype video. Um, it was a total disaster. It was awful. You could barely hear the speaker. Um, the you know, the attendee experience was dreadful, um, but they, they they did get to talk to you know really cool devs from California who were doing interesting <laughs> stuff. So, <laughs> well, this is the it did make me laugh when you said, "Oh, um, we didn't know what we were doing," because I think as an as an event organizer, there's always a bit of a learning curve when you try something new, isn't it? Isn't there? And it is always a little bit scary and there's always this sort of like, you know, is it going to work and what's it going to be like? 
But definitely once you've done it once or twice, it's like, why was I even worried? Because actually that's just second nature to me now. It's just getting over that initial, just try it, which is kind of a little bit difficult for me because um, I mentioned my dad was a perfectionist. He definitely passed that down to me. So when the pandemic came along and lockdowns came along and we were like, right, we've got a choice. Do we just stop doing meetups or do we go online? I was like, okay, we can try online, but it's not necessarily something I would have thought of doing and I don't know how to do it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, did that a couple of times and now I can run an online event really quickly and without thinking about it. But it's definitely that whole like, how's this going to go is, um, yeah, is a bit remember, Yeah, and then you're trusting technology, which is... yeah. A lot of it was quite I mean, rough you, at the beginning, and yeah, you were trusting Skype, so yeah, <laughs> <was> brave. <laughs> God help us, we, we were using Skype. Oh my God, uh, that that is a good story. I like that one. <laughs> uh, you know, project, you're, project, you're projecting it, and um, oh, it was yeah. And uh, the guy was incomprehensible because the sound quality was so awful. But anyway. Yeah, what you just said about projector just reminded me. So I went and did an in-person workshop um, about a few weeks before everything got locked down. And I got there, and this is like, you know, if you had a list of things that speakers need to, a checklist of things speakers should have um, when they go to do a talk. So I got there and their projector, the resolution was so low it like it was just it was like something it was probably from 2012 it's probably the same one you use for your skype mm-hmm. event um and i was like what is this and luckily i had a an adapter in my bag and stuff just in case because you yeah so uh things that you don't expect as a public speaker part 350 <laughs> a little bag of it every adapter ever made <laughs> yeah yeah exactly <laughs> exactly so this has been wonderful thank you so much lots and lots of interesting uh insights on devrel um and that core core issue of, of most businesses and human activities what on earth is the strategy don't just do random stuff um yeah <laughs> it's so hard requires actual thinking um yeah i'm still, I'm yeah. still yeah i still struggle with it myself um but it's good to i mean it's it's, it's good to highlight it i think a lot of people just worry about tactics and how you should run newsletters or whatever but why why uh, yeah and what, what are you gonna, and what are you going to do after the first one i've seen so many people launch things because they want this thing and i haven't thought about you know what does this thing look like in three issues time it's yeah 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 that is that is tough um and it's hard one experience that that you know actually just doing the first one is not good enough no, uh, the the actual doing of things, podcasts and newsletters is relatively straightforward. It's doing it consistently every yeah. week, every month, um, and setting yourself yeah. to do it that way. Uh, that's the hard work, and making sure it still it still meets the purpose that you originally set out. If you did set out a purpose, because you had a strategy. Yes. Uh, on that note, um, I'll actually give a shout out to uh, Sinead Creeley, our. Um, organizer for all these things who makes sure these podcasts go out and uh, does all that operational stuff for me so thanks today um you wouldn't be hearing from us without her <laughs> uh, all right thank you very much Suze. this has been wonderful thank you so much 
Thank you for inviting me. It's been fun. It's gone really quick. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, we shall, we shall, we shall talk again. I'm sure. Uh, hope to perhaps I'll see you virtually at a conference. Perhaps in real life, you never know. Definitely. Right. See you soon. Take care. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye. You can find the transcript of this podcast and any links mentioned on our podcast page at voxgig.com slash podcast. Subscribe for weekly editions where we talk to the people who make the developer community work. For even more, read our newsletter. You can subscribe at voxgig.com slash newsletter or follow our Twitter at voxgig. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.